There was the moral majority that was seeking to push back on some of the secularisation that was happening in our society, but there's also this this um, line of evangelicals that are continuing through the 1980s and the 1990s and onwards, evangelicals who are thinking, how do we continue to preach the gospel into our generation and are organising around that rather than organising around a particular political issue. So I think what you find is evangelicals are continuing to come up with new ways to present the gospel to a changing culture. Welcome back to the Shock Absorber podcast. We are back and uh, I'm glad to be back because we've had two weeks off because I was in COVID isolation, but I've taken care of COVID for a second time and I'm, <laughs> I'm back and ready to go. And it is lovely to be back with a vengeance with my two partners in crime, Tim and Stu. How are you guys? Really good, man. <laughs> i got to tell you, I don't want to be locked in my house again <laughs> and not podcasting either. That was really upsetting. So I'm glad to be back and actually recording a, a full podcast today. Um, uh, guys, we're, we're actually recording on a different day. Uh, we usually record on a Friday, but we're actually here at Sorrel Vole Church on a Saturday night. Um, and so if you are listening or watching, you may hear some weird noises coming from <laughs> from the other room because we are, there are people still hanging out tonight. Um, uh, guys, did you enjoy dinner? Because we did have a very nice dinner. I had gour- uh, Would you describe them as gourmet hot dogs? Gourmet sausages, hot dogs, and yes. <laughs> that's, that's a good description. That was great. And you guys also took part in an affogato. Oh, I had well. an affogato yeah, yes. for dessert. It's so. actually my mm. first affogato. Is oh, it? Really? I don't know wow. if I should feel bad about that. Like I'm, I feel like I'm old enough to have had one before. But yeah, yeah. they were really big in the sort of late '90s, early 2000s. There was that <laughs> big coffee kind of you know friends uh, induced you know coffee okay. culture, cafe culture mm. was a big thing. So, it sounds like the affogato might be our our cultural artifacts today. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> well, I don't partake in coffee, so uh, I'll leave you guys to to determine that. Uh, but Speaking of cultural artifacts, how about we get the real one out? And uh, Stu, it's uh, we talked about Francis Schaefer in the last episode uh, briefly towards mm-hmm. the end of the last full episode that we did. But um, you've chosen a book that he wrote, his last book, I believe it, it was. It is his last book, yes. As our cultural artifact. Do you want to fill us in? Yeah, so Francis Schaeffer was an author in the second half of the 20th century, uh, had quite an influential ministry. Um he and his wife Edith set up a ministry called Labrie in Switzerland and he wrote a number of books about uh, the uh, Christianity and Western culture and how the two interacted. And his last book was called The Great Evangelical Disaster, which is a bit of a, um, a, bit of a sad title, really. Yeah, a provoc- provocative title? Yeah, I like that word, that? provocative. Mm. Very provocative. And why was it provocative <laughs> as, a, as a title? Well, Schaefer was trying to make the point that he felt like that Christians had compromised their stand for the truth and morality and he made a point that he felt like there was almost um there was no uh why left in christianity i think if i read the book correctly he was saying that people had stopped teaching the why to their children or the why of christianity but were just teaching moral imperatives and so the provocative part of his comment uh, of his book was a deep call to come back to a deep commitment to Christ and a love for his church. So, uh, yeah, Louise and I had the opportunity to visit Labrie in mm. 2000 and that was quite amazing actually. It was really good because I had read Great Evangelical D- Disaster which had been written in 1984 in the early 90s when a friend of mine at church gave me the book and I was actually really excited about the idea of um, 
having a really deep love and commitment to Christ and love for his church. So that book had had a bit of influence on, I suppose, our Soul Revival, which this year has come up for its 30th anniversary. So we've been doing Soul Revival now together for 30 years and the church at Soul Revival Church for 10. Mm. So, yeah, I thought it was worth mentioning the book. Um, he uh, published this in 1984 and he passed away, I think, the same year. So oh, right. it is it is an interesting read. Uh, he raises some issues in the book that ended up becoming quite um, – big issues that we dealt with on earlier podcasts actually when we looked at the 2010s so in some ways he kind of predicted some of the conversations that were going to take place in the future um the uh yeah the the end of the book he has this little preface uh, what appendix section uh talking about some thoughts on love and particularly um got me interested in thinking about matthew 22 37 to 40 about love god and love others is a really crucial and core part of being a christian so yes i thought that was a pretty good book to point out today in your visit to labrie did you gain an idea or an understanding of why he wrote the book the water was terrific (laughs) it's just really good water in switzerland they drink glacial water (laughs) oh my goodness the best water i've ever tasted in my life yes it was quite good so i don't know if that had anything to do with it (laughs) (laughs) all jokes aside i think um I think what what Labrie is supposed to be is a place where you can have a space to have a think about your faith, have a think about uh, and talk to others about the Bible and investigate what it means for your life. And there's also a really high priority in delighting people. So I remember just being delighted the whole time I was there, actually. But interestingly, by 2000, I think there was a lot of people who were almost what I would call refugees from the church who were visiting Labrie. And I think the ministry had changed a little bit over the years that by the time I went to Labrie with Louise, just we were only there for a few days, so it's hard to say, but there seemed to be a lot of people that were there that we were talking to that were really dissatisfied with the church and they were looking for answers. Uh, you know, How do they connect to the local church? So I thought that was quite ironic considering the great evangelical disaster was calling on us to have you know that love and commitment for the local church but i think in 2000 that's when i first started thinking something's happening in culture there's there's um there's a whole group of evangelical christians that are feeling really dissatisfied with the local church and generation x seemed to be asking some new questions that maybe the baby boomer generation wasn't asking Mm. maybe that was my impression. Yeah, okay. And you said that the in that book, Great Evangelical Disaster, you talked about the why. Is that mm. perhaps at Labrie, you was like, at Labrie, you can really focus on and have a real think about why of your the why of your faith? Yeah, I, I think if I understand him, he's saying that we, we were, well, he, one of his criticisms of uh, Christianity, uh, evangelicalism in the second half of the 20th century is that parents were saying to their kids, you know, don't have sex outside of marriage, don't drink to get drunk, don't do this, don't do that. But they didn't tell them why those things were important. They were just giving them these moral imperatives. And particularly for baby boomers who were a part of a generation that was rejecting a whole heap of those, uh, I suppose, those um, formal traditional ways of thinking, uh, there wasn't a lot of reasoning around why Christians actually those kind of things and so he was trying to bring people back to the bible as evangelicals do uh to try and get our why from that mm. yeah. tim you're not planning a, a trip over to switzerland anytime soon to check it out or you uh, not unless you pay him i'd love to go but uh, yeah it's probably a bit out of the budget at the moment yes <laughs> i have um, been to switzerland once it's quite fun quite a fun place yeah, did you I'd like be the water place go. i don't i didn't try glacial water though oh, the water <laughs> everyone drinks glacial water apparently the whole water supply is from glacier melted glaciers really? 
So Mount Franklin isn't isn't the same. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, other waters are available. I it's quite say. refreshing. That sounds really cool. I actually would really like to check out Glacier Water. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> let's. Um, so we left off in the last full episode we did on the night, um, kind of coming into the nineteen eighties. Some of the topics we talked about was Ronald Reagan, uh, the influence of the moral majority in terms of electing him in the nineteen eighty election in America. Um, there was the Twisted Sister case about their battle against the I can't remember the PMHRC. Is that correct? I can't remember. But the parent, the parents were upset about lyrics, including Dee Snyder. But Dee Snyder seemed to have a uh, record quite a good win for for the other side um, in his court case that he um to, or the the Senate hearing that he turned up for. So towards the end of the second half of the nineteen eighties, uh, in the second uh, election that Ronald Reagan was part of, and he actually won, he was less reliant on um, the Christian right as they termed it. But I thought it's also worth uh, defining that the fundamentalists were very much a big part of getting behind Ronald Reagan. Stu, do you want to just quickly define fundamentalist versus evangelicals, that definition again for us? Yeah, okay. So Marsden's definition of a fundamentalist is an evangelical who's angry about something. And so if an evangelical gets angry about some kind of social issue, then they can become politically active. So a fundamentalist in in my mind is a politically active evangelical who has started to stand up for a particular issue. So there would have been evangelical parents who would have been worried about the impact of rock and roll on their children. And so they got angry at that and started actually uh, becoming politically active as a result. Um, And I'm I'm guessing that would explain some of the the, the focus on some of the issues such as school prayer and um, uh, gay rights movement, uh, abortion, all those kind of things. That they're, they're, those things that they felt very important to talk about. That's why they became politically active to talk about those issues. Yeah, and and we've we've made a bit of a distinction between evangelical and fundamentalist in this podcast series because we're looking at evangelism, and sometimes people put all evangelicals in the fundamentalist category, and we're saying that there is actually, as we will be talking about in this episode, there is a bit of a distinction between evangelicals who are politically active and those that are simply proclaiming the gospel uh that's a really interesting interface that we are looking at mm. and uh, um, i mean jerry forward who was the person that uh established the moral majority organization mm. he now said when reagan was first elected we now have a government in washington that would help us but then uh given that reagan in the second half of his term or his second he's in his second term then Dick became less dependent on the Christian right. Um, I, I wish my assumption would be that the moral majority probably weren't very happy about that because they didn't feel they had as much influence on it. But by 1986, effectively, the moral majority was retired by Fowell because um, uh, there were like a lot of campaigns. Uh, the campaign that Reagan ran um, sparked the downfall of many Christian right organisations and donations dropped off and they didn't feel like they had as much influence on it. What I'm wondering is, though, is... That how did how did do you are you are you aware of that time if the Christian right uh, and the fundamentalists are unable to get as much influence as they have how does that affect evangelism what what would have that done to actually affecting the way that people actually evangelize yeah so so I think that it's interesting Marsden himself says that the uh, the fundamentalists uh, are con- uh, constantly being written off as something that's not going to last very long and that's another example of it like by the 19 the end of the 1980s it looks like the fundamentalists influence has come to an end it seemed like a similar moment as in 1928 with the scopes monkey Mm. trial when the fundamentalists seem to have been publicly defeated in that context if people haven't listened to earlier episodes they might want to go back and have a listen to that episode and listen to that that was really fascinating but what marsden says is um particularly when he writes his 
his writings in you know the mid 2000s he starts talking about the fact that fundamentalism is still having an impact on evangelicalism and what we'll get to in later podcast episodes is talking about the whole phenomenon of trump coming forward and so many uh christian um leaders coming out in support of trump which was quite a unexpected turn of events and so there's there's a there's a possible uh turn for fundamentalism in that moment uh, but right through the 80s and the 90s, which we want to talk about today, there's still uh, there was there was the moral majority that was seeking to push back on some of the secularization that was happening in our society. But there's also this this um, line of evangelicals that are continuing through the 1980s and the 1990s and onwards. Evangelicals who are thinking, how do we continue to preach the gospel into our generation and are organising around that? rather than organising around a particular political issue. So I think what you find is evangelicals are continuing to come up with new ways to present the gospel to a changing culture. So Tim, uh, at that time around the, the later 1980s, what are your thoughts in, in terms of having a look at that particular time? Any any things you'd like to add to that? Yeah, it's just interesting looking at the, the moral majority and the way that they um, sort of harness the, the energy for... Uh, the Christian vote, essentially, um, and you know, as we're all, um, you know, as you you said just before we started recording, like we, we're all political in the sense that we, you know, we we vote. We are people that are in democracies, and mm. so we, we there's a position there where we do we, we go out, and, and those you know, in Australia, we've in the, got another four or six weeks or so, we're going to you know vote in our federal election, and so we there is a responsibility there, and what the major, majority is doing is sort of harnessing all of that, trying to. Um, pick all of these topics that are relevant to you know have some sort of um, spiritual or Christian moral um, impetus behind them. Package them all up together uh, under this big label of family values, and saying yeah this is where we're going to go. And so pulling along people as well. So people that may have voted all over the spectrum, um, actually trying to harness that and focus it in a particular way. Um, and so thinking about um, these ideas, um, like yeah, as you said, yeah, abortion, uh, divorce, uh, feminism, gay and lesbian rights, all of these types of things that have some impact on understanding of how we understand families and family structures, um, the mor- morality behind family structures, those kinds of things, and harnessing it all, pointing it all in a particular direction. Um, and so, yeah, as we you guys talked about, uh, yeah, previous episode. The impact that that had on the first Ronald Reagan thing uh, election, and not as much as the second one. Um, but what I find fascinating is the power and influence that the Christian vote seems to then have in because they're able to focus in this particular way, um, and it also ties a particular understanding of what it means to have you know Christian morals and values. Really closely ties it to a political spectrum as well, um, which we see, again, sort of continue on from the 80s. We see that through um, into the, you know, the more recent Trump era as well, is that to be a Christian is to have all of these particular values. And because the moral majority did so well in the messaging and the packaging of all of that with a particular end of the political spectrum, um, we see this convergence of Christian morality with a particular conservative 
political stance. Um, and again, one of the things we're trying to tease apart here is that there was that politically active fundamentalist edge to that. Um, and then the evangelicals are trying to have that through line like we've talked about in a number of previous episodes that hark back all the way to you know, a number of generations earlier with Whitfield and Wesley and others who were just trying to preach the gospel, recognising that the gospel does have social implications but not tying it to direct political action all the time and not making that a focus point of the way that they're expressing themselves. Um, and so, yeah, the way that I was able to harness that and the way that that has then captured the attention, the imagination, the story of what it means to be a Christian, politically active person, um, particularly in America. Like We're noticing a lot of these things last episode and this episode about what that means in America. Mm. Um, it seems to be a, a different story in the UK, a different story in Australia. We'll, we'll talk really soon about what was happening in the 80s in Australia and how that was more influenced by that through line of evangelicalism rather than a um, sort of a partisan political fundamentalism and we'll notice that I think that's really interesting um but yeah I think that it's how much that shapes the conversation and therefore the confusion that we come up against now when people say oh are you an evangelical and what they imagine that to be the packaging that comes in their mind with that label um oh if you if you're an evangelical therefore you are and then they lay out all of these often conservative political definitions of that from america from yes. america yeah. Yeah. Um, rather than what we would want to say no an evangelical as these things it is particular understandings of who jesus is what um, he is like who what he has done on the cross and his resurrection who he calls us to be our faith in him and so yeah the confusion that comes here really um uh yeah, it becomes apparent in the in the eighties with the moral majority, and has still flavours exactly the the tension that we're seeing now. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that confusion shoot? Like, how how do is there a, is there an uh, I don't think there'd be an easy way, but is there a way to perhaps articulate ourselves? And I know that you think about this a lot. Is there a way to articulate ourselves to make it clear that it? it, it I mean, the moral majority sounds like they've done a pretty good marketing job, you know, in the sense of like putting those labels on, like you said, and packaging it in certain groups but i think what we're trying to say is that there are there are, we would like to think of ourselves as evangelicals how do we tell people that and how do we use that in a way to evangelize rather than putting political labels on it so i think i think what's really important in the last couple of episodes and this one in particular is for us to understand the history of evangelicalism that there has been this uh fundamentalist um uh tangent that some evangelicals go off into mm. and that's often quite uh, particularly political and particularly public in its uh, um, expression. Yeah. So a lot of the evangelical, um, Protestant evangelical evangelism that's going on doesn't make the TV. So we talked about the fact that in America the moral majority was very, um, very public in the 80s coming in against rock and roll, saying mm -hmm. rock and roll's of the devil and syncopation is of the devil and you shouldn't have drums and guitars and all this sort of stuff. Um, particular bands like, you know, we've already mentioned some bands, but also other bands like Led Zeppelin and ACDC, they're looking for backmasking in songs even as far back as the Beatles and looking for lyrics that were going to take young people 
astray and lead them astray. But that wasn't just America. In England, there was also um, a really huge court case against a magazine called Oz Magazine. And Oz Magazine was pushing a lot of boundaries. It was uh, 1960s, late 1960s. And there were actually some Australian editors in the Oz Magazine. And they were taken to court for the fact that their magazine was too... Um, explicit in its sexual content and it was going to take you know young people astray and you can look up on youtube just type in oz magazine trial uh, in youtube and you can see all these christians demonstrating outside the court with placards so people have this public impression of christians standing up against oz magazine and oz magazine trial was again another example of where christians were publicly um, defeated i suppose through the public um, was actually more in favor with uh, the sexual revolution that was taking people more in the side of Oz magazine than that. So again, there's another moment that we wouldn't know about now, but it's part of the the long-term social con- you know, psyche of people are used to seeing Christians demonstrating against Oz magazine. Another example is Christians demonstrating against the life of Brian in England when the, <laughs> the Monty Python movie Life of Brian came out. Yeah. There was big debates on TV where religious leaders were debating John Cleese on TV about whether it was something we should be going to see. And so there was a big pushback on that. Again, with the 1960s, the you know, John Lennon had that passing comment the Beatles are bigger than Jesus in, with a lot of young people. And again, Christians are on TV burning Beatles records and demonstrating. So there's this kind of all these little instances going through history uh, form people's opinion of what an evangelical is. And so uh, people may not be particularly aware of one or two of those instances, but th- there's a c- cumulative effect that when we come forward and say, oh, I'm an evangelical or I'm a Christian even, I'm a Protestant, people... Think of those kind of instances. Uh, I mean, in Australia, there was the Christian Democratic Party that was uh, started as the Festival of Light under Fred Nile in the 1970s. And Fred is still actually, I think up until very recently, the head of that party. Mm. And he would publicly come out on television against a whole heap of causes, again, saying, you know, a lot of moral causes that he would be arguing against. And Christians in churches were really torn like some christians were saying how can you be a christian and not vote for fred nile and some christians were saying how can you be a christian and vote for fred nile uh later there's the uh, australian christian lobby that has kind of i suppose taken that public position so mm-hmm. that during the um same-sex marriage debate the acl was very prominent in the no corner and t- getting a lot of publicity for that so so for evangelical christians who are uh, keen to make their major um, effort to evangelize we we need to understand that there's a whole lot of baggage that comes as we talk to people about jesus they're going to be thinking of all these things so the purpose of this podcast series is to partly go it's good to be aware of all that and then it's good to be thinking well if we can differentiate between fundamentalists and evangelicals that will be helpful because if someone goes oh you are a trump supporter because all the christians support trump don't they well well there's the christian fundamentalists were supporting trump but evangelicals not all evangelicals were supporting Trump. So just giving people that sense, oh, so there's a difference between an evangelical and a fundamentalist. Yeah, there is, actually. Uh, also, there's a difference between Australian evangelicals and American evangelicals. Mm. And that, I think, helps people then to listen. So what we're trying to do is help people to understand a little bit of the context that they're hearing the gospel in in that regard, I think. Mm. Anything you want to add, Tim? Yeah, uh, Talk about responding in a sec, but I was just thinking when you talk about Life of Brian and the picketing outside um, and how that kind of plays into Marsden's definition that 
fundamentalists are those who are angry about something. Yeah. Um, and so they're angry about the depiction of religion and, and Jesus in the life of Brian. Mm. And so they go and pick it. And yep. the, the contrast in my mind was not a Christian one, but um, I heard that when the Book of Mormon um, came out in Broadway, um, which is quite, uh, my understanding is quite a stingy mockery of the Latter-day Saints. Um, I haven't seen it, but what I did hear about was that there was, the Mormons actually did this advertising campaign. So they booked out all of the um, advertising spaces outside the theatre that it was in, right. and they just put up posters that said, seen the show, now read the book. Um, <laughs> right. And, you know, pick up, a, pick up a copy of the Book of Mormon, you know, and then gave mm. some website. And I just thought, oh, there's, there's a non-fundamentalist, like non-angry mm. response. It was kind of like, yeah, we're being mocked, but we're not going to respond with pickets. We're going to respond with this, you know, take it on the chin and then give our message. Um, mm. And I just thought that was just an interesting contrast between those two things. And a lot has changed culturally between when Life of Brian came out and then the Book of Mormon. Um, but, yeah, that was one of the things that, that mm. came to me there. And, and it plays into that Marsden idea of what a fundamentalist is. Mm. In terms of your, your question to Stu about sort of how do we respond, I think one of the things that uh, I'm really aware of is trying to unbundle these ideas. Yeah, like the moral mm. majority tried to bundle these ideas together um, and because they were a politically active movement, they were bundling Christian morality and Christian understandings, which were coming out of often right readings of Scripture, but tying it and bundling it so closely to a particular conservative political agenda. And often they'd bundle into their other conservative views that didn't really have um, Christian positions. They, but they, because they were conservative positions, they bundled all that in together as well. Um, and so if I do have those conversations where people are like, oh, well, are you an evangelical? Are you a fundamentalist? Are you a Christian? Those kind of things. I think, you know, if I'm sitting down for a long time, hopefully, with someone having those conversations, I might ask them, well, can you define what you mean by that? And then as they start to unpack what they understand that term to mean, I can then be able to say, okay, well, that's, that's interesting. You've heard that. I can see why you've picked those things up. Let me tell you, uh, how I understand that and let me tell you about my faith and what that means and the positions that I might have on X, Y and Z issue because of my faith. Um, and that kind of, mm. but I think it's the unbundling that is needed um, in this particular moment mm. and also resonated with what Stu was saying before about Labrie being that place of exile for those who are feeling exile from the church. And again, we're now, what, a generation, maybe two generations later from um, when Labrie was first started um, a generation from when Stu was there, when you know, there was the Gen Xers that were mm. feeling disenfranchised by the church. And now we've got a lot of millennials um, who are being really disenfranchised by the church. So we have the ex-evangelical movement and things like this where people are trying to distance themselves from what they understand Christianity to be. And a lot of the conversations I see in that space uh, is also this kind of, they've been told that Christianity is this, and their church has bundled all of these ideas together, including a whole lot of political um, positions that they might not necessarily hold to or they might interpret scripture a little bit differently or see other ways of perceiving different ideas. But because they've been told, no, 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 to be a Christian is also to be all of these other things and you take the whole package or you leave the whole package, you've got people who are saying, well, therefore I mustn't be a Christian then. Um, or... 
I think I'm still a Christian because I, I trust in the words of Jesus. I just don't see how the words of Jesus line up with this package mm-hmm. um, and particular positions within the package or particular people who are pushing that package. And so I think you know, trying to unbundle these things um, is really helpful, which is why that through line of evangelicalism that says, here's what we're about. We're about um, whatever that Bevington quadrilateral was, the, you know, the, the atonement, um, the Bible, the authority of the Bible, um, the individual um, conversion uh, and the appropriate social activism. Like those, having those four things and saying, okay, this is what evangelicalism is and if we can unbundle that from a lot of things that may have been misapplied or may have just passed their time, like the rock and roll debate, um, you know, we can start to have helpful conversations where we can help people see Jesus because that's what we're about as evangelicals. We want people to see Jesus. Yeah. Um, and that will mean uh, getting rid of some of the noise that's around it. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. Yeah, so I, th- I, think, I think that's it. I think by even our young people in our churches are going to be helped by saying there is a differentiation between evangelicalism and fundamentalism that not even not all evangelicals are angry about something and then get politically active and so let's look at jesus first and who do you think he is and then um let's read the bible together and try and work that other stuff out yeah that's really cool um isn't isn't life of brian one of your favorite movies <laughs> i think monty python is one of my favorite um shows comedian, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, things, yeah. comedy yeah, troops it is i think it's terrific actually it's a it's a very funny movie and uh, I think it's a good example of what we're talking about rather than – see, I think I think with Life of Brian, I think they spent more time paying out Christians than they did paying out mm. um, Jesus. And some people use that as a hollow defense of the movie. But I think if you watch it, there's also a lot of political insights in the movie. And it's interesting actually because that movie I think is coming – one of the things that's interesting about Monty Python is that – some of our listeners and viewers might not be aware of them, but they're a comedy group uh, that, that formed up – pretty much in the early, late 1950s, early 1960s. And and the way, what I think they actually helped the British in particular and, and many Australians who were British Australians from heritage kind of cope with the end of empire. And so okay. they would be laughing at a lot of the things of the empire and it kind of gave the British people an opportunity to move on. So they'd la- laugh at the English army, they'd laugh at the, the strictness of, you know, the middle class and the you know the British stiff upper lip and all these kind of politeness. things politeness politeness yeah. all that kind of stuff but then also the whole idea of just um, I think they were also coming into their four at the end of Christendom too so some of this moral majority I think is actually struggling to cope with the fact that Christendom is coming to an end that there's no longer this connection between uh, church and state so much and that the church doesn't have this authority in the public square that it used to so the Monty Python were kind of laughing at that. Mm-hmm. Um, that Christendom piece a little bit as well. Uh, so a lot of this moral majority in the 80s and 90s is Christians coming to the terms with actually, you know, we, we're actually a, a, another minority in the community rather than the the moral majority that is actually the majority of the community. And I remember Jerry Falwell, the, the leader of the moral majority, saying, oh, we're speaking up for the silent majority in a sense. Like the, yeah, for, yeah. For exactly that, what you're saying. That, that's almost a Christendom view, isn't it? Yeah. Like that the majority of people are Christian and they're not talking up about all these changes and yeah. we're going to represent We've them. We've got to give yeah. it a platform. Yeah. yeah, that kind of thing. Okay. So we also, um, we've 
already referenced a, a number of uh, things in um, Australian history around that time. So I think that'd be cool to shine a light on mm. that kind of thing. Um, two of the names that you've mentioned that we've decided to mention is Philip Jensen and John Chapman, mm. who have been very influential at that time. What's, let's get into them because, I, mm. I, I mean, I personally do not know that much about these yeah, guys. Yeah, sure, sure. So, uh, you know, we Sorovile's an Anglican church, Sydney Anglican church, so uh, we thought it might be interesting just to look at some of the evangelicals from the the Sydney Anglican history. There's lots of other examples that we could look at of Australian evangelicals, but looking at Philip Jensen's interesting because we were just talking about this recognition that something's changed in the 1960s and that there's this end of Christendom. Um, Philip Jensen was a guy who grew up in a time where uh, cultural Christianity was still quite common and nominalism within that was very, very common. Uh, Philip uh, grew up, seeing that not everybody who was at church were Christians and sometimes there were Christians on parish councils in churches and in, in Sunday school teachers and stuff that actually weren't Christians but it was just culturally uh, a good thing to be a Christian and be in a church and was, you actually got some social status from being a Sunday school superintendent and actually put that on your job <laughs> resume right. when you would go for a job interview. So bank managers were superintendents of Sunday schools and things like that. So uh, what Philip and his brother Peter actually, Peter would actually go on to be the Archbishop of Sydney uh, in the 2000s. Philip would uh, go on to become, um, uh, in the 1980s, he would start um, working on a number of ministries that we can touch on today. But in the in the kind of late 60s, early 70s, Philip and his brother and others in that generation started to notice that a lot of people who weren't Christian stopped going to church. And rather than that being a bad thing, he actually thought it was a good thing because uh, there was the people who were left in churches, particularly those in authority, were actually Christians. So, so there was a big group of evangelicals that were actually not, I wouldn't say excited about the number of people that had stopped coming to church, but they're actually saying, well, actually, the number of people who are going to church now are Christians. And so we can organise together as Christians to be a, a, a group within the society. So Philip got really involved with uh, St Matthias and campus Bible study at the University of New South Wales. And so interestingly, he had a similar impulse to Francis Schaeffer in that he was um, seeking to start a ministry to university students and young people. But rather than being baby boomers, he started a ministry to late boomers and now Gen Xers coming through. And he had an incredibly phenomenally successful ministry at, at campus Bible study. And it was just a Bible study that uh, young people would go to listen to. A lot of the young people would go out onto the library lawn at University of New South Wales and do what they call library lawning, which would be just go up and do cold face evangelism. Come, someone have, Do you believe in Jesus? Do you mind if we have a talk about Jesus? And they talk about it. Um, they developed a thing called the MTS program, which was a ministry training scheme that meant a lot of the people who went through campus Bible study actually went on to go to more college and become ministers. So a huge number of people who went through our Bible college at Sydney came from campus Bible study. Uh, he also developed um, the uh, Two Ways to Live course, which was an evangelistic course that people would go through, which talked about the fact that Jesus is king and we've replaced his kingship with our own kingship, that we try to be... Uh, our own authority and we worship the creation rather than the creator and then the two ways to live is about thinking about actually having jesus as king that he came and he died for us and he rose from the dead really strong focus on the cross and that 
course was in place for a number of years and became incredibly popular amongst a lot of Sydney Anglican churches. And so, yeah, that whole uh, focus also led to um, a partnership between him and uh, John Chapman, who may have been one of the greatest evangelists that Sydney produced. And his evangelism was so engaging and so terrific. Uh, He was so excited about the gospel and he just had this very clear presentation of the gospel. So these men, John Chapman, Philip Jensen, Peter Jensen, uh, people of that generation, were actually coming up against some of the traditionalism in the Anglican Church in Sydney. So there were those who were uh, nervous about the impulse of these new generation of leaders that were coming through, they weren't wearing robes, they were wearing suits and ties and they were sort of challenging some of that high church kind of uh, expression for more of a lower church expression and having a great deal of success uh, within the Sydney context anyway. So, um, yeah, so I think I think that was a really interesting uh, phenomena that was taking place at the same time as Festival of Light or the moral majority were trying to be more active politically there's this upswell of young people who are going to university to become professionals but then being encouraged to actually not go into their desired profession actually instead think about going into ministry and being a minister and um, I was actually one of the young people that went through later in that era in the early 90s um, my wife and I were at uh, mid-year conference at campus bible study where we decided to um, take the offer of our local church minister who was offering us to for me to be a youth minister at Guymer Anglican Church made that decision under Philip's ministry because he said rather than getting a job and then finding a church uh, getting a job then finding a house and then finding a church maybe you should find a church then find a job so you can stay in a house near your church and <laughs> Lou and I took that seriously and we actually did that at mm. Guymer Anglican so I don't know how many young people listen to that call but yeah that was a that was a a different kind of trajectory and i think following through on that line of evangelicalism yeah with chapo or chapo as as he was known Mm. um in in wikipedia it has john chapman and then in brackets evangelist which i thought was pretty cool um but i've only actually i think i only saw chapo once and he he made you pay attention when when you were listening to i was just wondering tim did you have any experience of seeing john chapman speak in front of people because I, I, I uh, he definitely made sure he knew you were getting the message. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, I, I can remember once really clearly. I may have heard him two or three times at different events. Um, but, yeah, I, I do remember him coming as a guest speaker at our church once and just giving a sermon. And, yeah, just, I mean, it was just super engaging. Um, and he would have already been... Um, yeah, he was he was an old man. Yeah, you know, when he was speaking at our church, but the energy and the vitality that came off him, um, particularly when he got up to speak about the gospel, um, and I don't I don't remember having a one on one conversation with him, but remembering him up the front, and yes, he just had this enthusiasm for Jesus and a deep love and desire that other people would know Jesus. Uh, and I think that really captures, he really captures beautifully that idea of the evangelical is the one who the driving priority is that people know Jesus. Um, and yes, there's all sorts of implications that come out of that. Um, and, you know, I think Philip and the way that he has shaped people's priorities, I think that 
you know, they're all implications of the gospel. You know, why would you choose a particular place to live in and, and stay and all those kinds of things? And how would you choose your career path or how could you be um, confidently Christian in the workspace if you do go into professionalism? I think uh, Philip and, and um, his brother Peter, uh, who was also really significant, um, uh, principal of our training college, Moore College, uh, and Archbishop of our diocese, uh, it's just been really, really clear and it that beautiful through line of here we are, we're opening up the Bible with people, talking about Jesus. That's our priority. That's what we are doing. Um, I just think that's, yeah, just really clear examples of of that and that trajectory through which we've been painting mm. over these last few episodes. I just found an article about Chapo uh, where he said Australians are hard to reach with the gospel because life here is so good which he said at a national conference, and I think there's probably a fair bit of truth to that. Is there anything else in Australia, Stu, that um, was important in the, around in that time that, is, that established that evangelical line? Yeah, well, I think I think one of the things that John Chapman and Philip Jensen shared with many others in Australia, in Sydney as well with evangelicals, was a propositional evangelism where there was still this sense that we're going to uh, present to you the gospel and show why it makes sense. Um Preaching is really key to these guys, and so preaching and the skill of preaching is taken really, really seriously. And they were building on the work of John Stott in Sydney, who was arguing for expo- expository t- teaching, which is to go through the Bible and let the Bible speak mm. um, for itself, rather than just having topical sermons here, there, and everywhere. Actually, take a book and read through it together and preach it well and present. Um, the gospel and present Jesus and the cross through preaching. So that was a really big focus, and many people had that focus during that time. Um, during the eighties, though, too, there was still a bit of a hangover from the Jesus movement, particularly in charismatic circles, with um, groups like Hillsong that were emerging in the eighties, where Christian music was still a really powerful preaching tool that many people were using. So that was a bit of a contrast to Jensen and John Chapman, who were more the spoken word and continuing on that tradition, which was also, I suppose, a Billy Graham kind of preaching tradition of evangelism. But music still had uh, a great deal of uh, impact in Australia and around the world. Um, the, the story goes that uh, Hillsong in its early iterations, um, I think in the 1970s, uh, was... At some stage, there was just about 30 adults meeting in, in a hall somewhere. And I think they call it uh, Hills Christian Life Centre, I think, at the time, something like that. Yeah, sorry. And yeah. um, apparently, uh, one weekend, a whole heap of hippies from Mullumbimby had decided that, you know, the hippie movement had ended and these Jesus people from Mullumbimby decided to come back to Sydney and they visited this church. And apparently, one side of the, I've talked to s- some people from Hillsong who were there that day, and one side of the church were all these adults, and one side of the church were all these hippies from Mullumbimby right. who just rocked up to the church <laughs> to see what was going on. Apparently, whoever the pastor was that day said to these young hippies, Why don't you get up and play us some worship music? And so they got up and they started playing uh, their Jesus, you know, movement sort of folky sort of rock and roll sort of Christian music and that was the genesis of Hillsong music which then ended up the church changed its name to Hillsong uh, arguably they they were prominent in in um, really calling Christian music worship they made a real strong so so this is happening at the same time as the the Philip Jensen sort of stuff going uh, in the Sydney Anglican churches Hillsong church grew exponentially as many charismatic churches did through 
music, but it wasn't just in the church music. There was also still a Christian music industry that had inherited um, the tradition of Larry Norman and Keith Green and all those guys in the 70s. Uh, There was a really huge Christian music industry that was still going on around the world. There were bands like Petra and Amy Grant and these kind of artists that were making huge amounts of a following and lots of money and that they were still preaching from a, a Jesus movement sort of rock and roll sort of style putting l- Christian lyrics into contemporary music and it was actually called contemporary Christian music mm-hmm. uh, it wouldn't be until the early 90s that that started to be to come out of fashion again uh, tooth and nail records in the early 90s was probably the one of the epochs of that contemporary Christian music with bands like MXPX and you I mean this is kind of your genre here with all that yeah Tooth and Nail was a a massive part of my uh, adolescence so yeah um, I could rattle off a whole lot of bands Um, but that that uh, music punk and and hardcore metal kind of um, scene but what it was what was interesting is that they're gathering together people who um uh, a Christian or Christian adjacent and are making music, um, but they also sort of challenging that heritage a little bit as well. Um, so you didn't have to be really overtly Christian in your lyrics. Um, and Tooth and Nail itself, yeah, they often put on other bands on the roster that weren't really Christian at all, um, but were happy to be within that scene, um, which was really interesting. So there's a whole kind of st- long story there. But, um, yeah, we... St- it starts to fracture and break down a little bit, but it's also a little bit of that kind of, I suppose, a deconstruction of what it means to be a Christian band. Um, and it had got to a point by you know, the late 80s, early 90s in Christian music that there was a particular uh, cookie cutter of what it meant to be a, a Christian band. You had to have this many, you know, they, they talk about Jesus per minute. Like how many um, <laughs> names, times can you name drop Jesus? JPMs. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and it has a particular sound and it's not particularly inventive or, or creative um, in that kind of scene. And so there was a lot of bands who were trying to push the creativity, kind of hold on to the Christianness and, and be seen in that. They would also challenge that a little bit as well. And so you've now got, I mean, we're now another 20 years after that or 30 years after that um, and you've got a lot of those bands like MXPX who certainly the lead singer would no longer identify as a Christian you've got a lot of deconstruction and deconverting happening from bands that were in that scene um, or you had uh, people who were in that scene and went off to become pastors of churches um, you know like a, a number of the supertones they're all you know youth pastors and pastors of churches um, couple of the five mind frenzy people had started a church um so yeah you've kind of got this uh mix of things happening but part of it is a challenge to that amy grant era um a deconstruction of that trying to work out what does it mean to be authentically christian in that space um, and what's really interesting is we we track that through to today what i've noticed is that there's a lot less who are in that blurry middle and it seems seem to have now completely fractured again and Christian music largely now is praise and worship. Yeah, um, I agree with that. And so you've got the the big Christian bands, whereas in the 90s you had these big Christian bands that were punk and rock and alternative, whereas now it's really just the praise and worship bands. It's the, you know, Ren Collectives and the Hillsong United, um, you know, for King and Country and all. They're the ones who are 
you know, kind of the big stars in the Christian music industry at the moment. Mm-hmm. That's just not another thing on that. I think what's really interesting is rock and roll did become a huge evangelistic device in the 70s and then it went through into the 80s. But then by the 90s, uh, the whole idea of a Christian band was becoming an anathema to a lot of Gen Xs. And so then there was this idea that we're not a Christian band, we are Christians in a band. And so there was this this really strong differentiation in the 90s from the 80s. But what got lost was that evangelistic edge like Mm -hmm. when i was young and i'd go to a concert there was this heartfelt call to the young people in the audience to think about making a a commitment to christ but not only that there was this huge underground scene in sydney with all these uh, bands in sydney like in the silence with john dixon there was um uh, Priority Paid was another big band. I actually met my wife Louise at a Priority Paid concert at Glebe Town Hall. <laughs> we were both from the Shire, but we both travelled over there. So we'd all go all over Sydney listening to all these bands every week. And that was a, it was actually a really sad thing that we've lost that because uh, one of my favourite bands, Surprise, was really good at actually articulating a lot of our angst as young Christians and, and talking about the topics we we're interested in talking about. And we had a voice, but I think a lot of young Christians have lost that voice in the context of seeing that as a bit daggy, but that's, that's a change in evangelism. So mm-hmm. Christian music used to be an evangelistic device. It isn't anymore. Another thing uh, you were saying is what else was happening within evangelism in the eighties and nineties uh, was I think there was also this big debate between uh, mainline Protestants and some of the charismatic areas. I, I know when John Wimber came to Sydney, there was a delegation of uh, evangelical leaders from Sydney Anglican churches that went to the airport to ask him to get back on the plane and go home. Wow. Because he was saying that unless you have preaching with power, with manifestations of the Holy Spirit, with healings and speaking in tongues, then it's not really preaching. It's not being preached with power. So, yeah, so some of those debates were raging in the 80s and 90s. And again, there's still some um, baggage that we have from some of those debates that uh, sometimes evangelicals can be seen as too strict and, you know, looking for uh, an argument all the time because whenever there's um, a discussion about doctrine, sometimes that can deteriorate into an unhelpful conversation, or even if it doesn't, it can still be seen as conflictual. And progressively more as we get into the 90s and 2000s, people are becoming um, yeah, more interested in changing the nature of debate. And you know we have a rise of safe spaces and microaggressions and all these kind of things. So sometimes evangelicals are seen as too hard edge. So even if we're not associated with uh, fundamentalists, sometimes we're seen as too dogmatic or too opinionated. And sometimes it goes back to some of those earlier debates in the 80s and 90s, mm. which is good to be aware of. Yeah, yeah I feel think that we've touched on a lot of topics there. If, just before, we've got a question, so I'd like to mm. go to that. But I just if anything else you wanted to add there, Tim? before we do that no and I think, I think that's been really good yeah mm. yeah thanks no thank you i've learned a lot so thank you very much we've got a question though from andrew who emailed me a couple of weeks ago so mm. sorry we're only getting to it just now but that was because i was in COVID isolation um he's very complimentary to begin with which is very nice of him um thanks for listening andrew <laughs> um he says uh thanks to you Stu and tim for the recent episode are all evangelicals fundamentalists and for the whole podcast as a whole um I've been racing through them, so I still haven't caught up to the present time, but he's he's getting through them because he he skipped onto that episode because it was really interesting for him. Um, I thought it would be worth breaking down his question into two parts. So the first section he says, here's what I'm not willing to accept yet. The definition of fundamentalist being a politically driven Christian. I'd get that this is not 
this is the popular usage, but I don't think evangel- evangelist Christians should be so willing to give up the label fundamentalist to others when it also describes anyone who believes the gospel is fundamental to humanity surviving judgment and getting to heaven rather than hell. I know lots of non-believers would ask me if I was a Christian fundamentalist, and if I said yes, I would conclude I want to uh, be real hardcore on a lot of those um, issues that we've talked about previously. But if I say no, they will conclude I don't believe Jesus rose from the dead um, and and is the only way to heaven um, because these are fundamentals to the faith too. So, Stu, do you want to take that first and then we, we can go on to his next next question as well, which is it's talking about how we're trying to tease apart those two mm. kind of labels. I think that's really good, Andrew, and, and thank you for your patience with us. Um, you know, we, we're just thinking out loud too. We're having to think about some of these things and looking at culture and listening to what people are saying and mm-hmm. having to think about it, looking at history. Uh, so the conversation is really valuable to us. Um, yeah, I suppose what we're trying to say, I think, is that evangelicals and fundamentalists actually have the same starting point. They believe in the fundamentals of the gospel. So uh, what we're trying to say, though, is when people... So, so if someone was to say, I'm a fundamentalist because I believe Jesus rose from the dead... I would be happy to say I believe Jesus rose from the mm. dead, mm-hmm. and if they want to call me a fundamentalist, then that's you know that's up to them. They can call me a fundamentalist. But what I am thinking is that if someone says, "Oh, are you because you believe Jesus rose from the dead? Are you aligned with people who thought rock and roll was really evil and we should get rid of it?" I would probably say, "Oh, look, there's some parts of rock and roll that I don't think are." terrifically edifying but i don't think we throw out the whole genre as a result um so i believe in the fundamentals of of scripture but i i'm not angry about rock and roll so that's the point where i try and make a differentiation mm-hmm. between evangelicalism and fundamentalism but if someone calls me a fundamentalist because i go to church i go to church I'm unapologetic <laughs> about that yeah you will wear that label with pride I will, you go to church. i'm happy to wear that label if that's what they want to say yeah. yeah okay cool anything you want to add there tim no, only that, again, like I talked about earlier, it's that unbundling. It, yeah. And I think this is where um, the difficulty may lie. And I've had this conversation with a few different people. Is, you know, do we want to hold on to the label fundamentalist because we believe the fundamentals of the faith? Um, and what do we do with that? Mm. Uh, and, yeah, so, I, I'd, again, I'd want to unbundle those things because if I'm particularly if I'm talking to someone who – well, even if I'm talking to a Christian, but if I'm talking to a, someone who is outside the church and is looking in – so are you one of those fundamentalists? Um, I'd want to have the conversation where I tease that out. Um, and Andrew's right. If I just say yes, they're going to assume a whole lot because they come with a particular package in mind when they ask that question. Um, and it might even be someone within the church who themselves, maybe they hold on to more of that package than I would. But if they ask if I'm a fundamentalist um, and if I said, oh, I believe the fundamentals of the faith, they go, oh, good. So you hold on to these, all of this package that I also hold on to. And I might want to say, well, hold on, let's, let's pull that apart and let's look at each of those one by one. Um, but again, do I believe in the fundamentals of the faith? Absolutely. The other thing just to note uh, for Andrew and others listening in is language does change over time. Mm. Uh, and that's just languages are organic and ideas are organic. Um, and there are times when it is appropriate to uh, fight for a label um, and then other times where it's okay to let labels go because language and culture has changed. Um, and I think what we're doing is it's a couple of things, but one is we want to try and draw that th- through line. We wanna, we're trying to hold on to the label mm. of evangelical. I think that's one of the things. Whereas I've heard some debates, particularly um, some commentators in America, who 
like us, would believe in the fundamentals of the faith. They, they would be firmly in the evangelical camp, but are questioning, do we hold on to this label or do we discard the label evangelical altogether and find something else, you know, a, a Christ-following Christian or a, you know, whatever they're trying to explore and there's nothing really certain to hold on to. We're trying to hold on to that because we think there's an important lineage to hold on to. Um, but because of the trajectory that we've been noting over a number of episodes of how fundamentalists have this particular view that historians um, like Marsden, um, political scientists use labels like you know, fundamentals for their polling and other things, I think it is, is good and right for us to tease those apart um, so that we can be really clear on the things that we do believe. Um, and that's what we want to hold on to. And, and moving on to the second part of Andrew's question, we might have already answered, but I wanted to honour his question by saying the same thing. It is, it, and, and he wants to find out what is a better descriptive term that we can think of. He thinks that we need to be absolutists or essentialists or whatever the right term is So and feels like we're wasting everyone's time if we're not. But he doesn't know how to express this while distinguishing themselves from um, the very politically active, uh, what we would term fundamentalists. Um, he says that whenever someone talks about Francis Schaeffer or Mother Teresa forsaking civilised comforts to devote their whole lives to the gospel, they are talking about people who are focused on the fundamental truths no matter um, that matter more than their own quality of life. So we, in some cases we are definitely fundamentalists in practice, but how do we express this? express this is his question anything else you want to add to that well andrew might even want to hold on to the title fundamentalist and mm. and make that the, the the category that he considers to be most helpful to explain what a bible believing christian is someone who takes the bible as the word of god and seeks to put it into practice in their life uh, i still really like the word evangelical because i like the fact that it comes from the greek word euangelion which means good news and I think a good news Christian is someone who is is making the most important thing the most important thing, which is what I think Jesus does in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, when he says that he had come to bring the kingdom of heaven and uh, he calls on us to re- believe and repent, that mes- re- repent of our sins and believe in that message. And I think that's really cool. cool. I reckon it's really clear. I really love it. And um, it's really ancient, but it's also really important now and i think trying to have this conversation is actually really helpful for particularly young people who don't have a historical context of all this stuff that we're talking about and just just don't feel like they're resonating with their church they can have a conversation with their youth pastor about this a bit more do you do you think we're at our church we're evangelicals who are angry about something or or are we just on about the gospel um, it just starts a good conversation. It can be helpful for people who aren't Christians as well, who think they know who we are and think we know what we stand for, but we might surprise them and delight them that actually we're into something that's even more abiding than just having a particular political view of the most current social pro- pro- uh, you know, uh, issue that seems to be talked about. So, um, yeah, I, I think we're all going to make different decisions on that. I'm, I'm really comfy with the word evangelical and... For me, that means believing in the fundamentals of the Christian faith. So, yeah, I don't know what you think, Tim, but that's how I feel. The, when it comes to evangelism, and this is what this whole series is about, right? If we're talking about whatever happened to mm. evangelism. The point of evangelism is to make the gospel comprehensible and understandable yeah. to the person you're trying to reach. And there comes a point where particular labels or words may actually be hindering your ability to communicate mm. that message 
rather than helping your ability to communicate that message. Mm-hmm. Um, like really simply, I just right then typed in fundamentalist into Google Images. <laughs> All of the things that come up, you can imagine. Like it, it, one of them is, um, are you angry? You might be a fundamentalist. <laughs> um, another one is someone who's beaten someone to death with a Bible mm. and there's blood all over the Bible. Oh, and mm. like, so there's, if this is what Google is going to throw up at my inquiring friend when they look at fundamentalism, then this is, this is the picture they come with. And so if I, you know, try and hold on really tightly to that label, I've got a lot more work to do, which is unnecessary work when it needs to actually, oh, I just want to communicate who Jesus is, what he has done for you on the cross and how you have been given an invite into that kingdom. Um, and there's, we can talk about all the other implications of that as we go and, and a lifelong discipleship. That's what Jesus calls us to in Matthew 28, go make disciples of all nations. And that includes the initial you know, communicating the gospel to someone and the lifelong walking with someone as you grow them in faith and they grow us in faith. Um, that, that's all fine, but the clarity of having a clear gospel presentation, if we can just remove the barriers from people that they have so that the message of Jesus is clear, that's what we want to do. As evangelicals, that's the, the key thing is that, you know, it's, it's about the atonement, it's about a, a firm understanding of who, what, what the God's word is and it's about the personal response that we need to make to that. Um, and I want to make that as winsome and clear to people as possible. Um, and when the, the fundamentalists we've been arguing in history have been distracted by this political um, activism, um, is that, again, even if we agree with the moral um, pack parts of that that they were agreeing with. You know, there, there are certain things about f- family values that I'd say, yes, that they are biblical values. Um, but we're talking about Jesus and we're talking about our relationship with Jesus and that's where we want to focus. We want to get people clear there. Um, and so I don't think I would use the word fundamentalist, you know, for myself. I just don't think that it, in this particular culture with the particular people I want to reach and the particular conversations I want to have, I don't think it's a, a helpful turn. It, that doesn't mean, as Andrew's question said, that I'm chucking out the historicity of Jesus or anything. Like, yeah, absolutely, the Apostles' Creed, believe, yeah, that Nicene Creed, I'm a Nicene Creed Christian. Yeah, those things are absolutely true and I hold on to them firmly um, for the sake of others seeing who Jesus is and seeing him really beautifully as that excitement we talk about John Chapman have, the glow on his face about who he knows Jesus to be and how he wants other people to be brought into that as well. That's where I want the my my passion and my you know attention to be, and I just think um, some of the these other packaged items and being able to unbundle from those will be it is is more on a clarity to who Jesus is, and that's the most important thing. Yeah, well, I think that's a fantastic way to end. So thank, thank you very <laughs> thank you very much, Tim. And I think, but also just before we do end, that's all we're trying to do on the podcast is to talk about it and raise the mm. discussion about it to understand it so that we can evangelize better because that is the key it's people's salvation is key and we're going to partner with god as he wins people over for his kingdom and i think that's what we're trying to do more than anything else than try and um place labels on ourselves or other people or anything like that we, we don't really want to create division in any sense it's more about how are we going to do this together with god and i think that's what we're trying to do so uh, thank you very much 
for your time on the podcast today. Thank you to everyone for listening. And um, uh, I have learned a lot, as always, so I appreciate it. <laughs> um, guys, if you're listening or watching, like Andrew, you can email me a question in on joel at shockabsorber.com.au. Uh, you can subscribe to our email newsletter at shockabsorber.com.au. You can subscribe to the podcast or uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Sorrow Revival Church. Um, there's a Discord link in the show notes where we can talk about this as well. Um, as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for being on the podcast, guys. Really appreciate it. And as always, finish with a one way. One way. One way.